Sometimes the way that you get an idea about what to speak about on a Shabbat morning is shockingly to look at the Torah portion. Sometimes the way that you figure out what to talk about on a Shabbat morning is by looking at the Torah portion and talking to other people. This week I did both. In a conversation I had with a congregant who just returned back from a, one of the many that seem to be developing solidarity missions that are going to Israel. This one in particular, he went through uh, Ramah, Ramah, Canada. It was a family mission. He started off by saying that he was suspicious about the effect of him going to Israel, thinking that, oh, people would look at them as seeing just another bunch of Canadians or Americans or whatever showing up in the country to take some pictures and spend a few days here and go back. But he said he was so deeply touched by how so significantly the Israelis wanted people to come that they feel alone and isolated, putting aside, of course, the stress and fear that they're living under all the time. He said that really deeply, deeply moved him into understanding the impact of him going there. But he said to me, one of the things that he did, he went with his son and some other families, and one of the things they did amongst the, a number of volunteer things that they were organized for was they went to a sewing factory and they made tzitzit for soldiers. Now, tzitzit are literally the fringes, but there are two forms to this, generally. There are the tzitzit that are on a talit that you put on in the mornings and also on kol nidre night. Um, and so that's what you wear in shul. But there's also an additional form of the tzitzit called literally arba kanfot, which are an undergarment that you wear. It also creates the four-cornered garment that then bears the requirement of putting tzitzit on. A long time ago, the white people wore were tunics. And tunics were four-cornered garments. And hence the requirement, the biblical one, of putting the tzitzit on the corners of them. When people stopped wearing tunics, uh, presumably in the wintertime in Europe, they weren't so, uh, so appropriate. Uh, people transitioned into other clothes. And the rabbinic commandment of putting this on in the morning was to fulfill this commandment. I remember in the army years and years ago um, when it was cold outside in a guard duty, we would, put a, we would put a blanket over us. And what we would do, because a blanket is a four-corner garment, we would cut the corner, one of the corners, and round it off so they didn't have to put tzitzit on it. Anyways, he said that there's been a run on the undergarments, the arba kanfot, the undergarments. Everyone wants to wear them who's going into the army, including the Druze. This phenomena is known to us. The phenomena whereby, example, if someone is having marital problems, a rabbi, not this one, but a rabbi might say, check your ketubah. If you're having problems with children in your family, the rabbi might say, not this one. Check the mezuzot on your home. You should check them anyway. But he would say, check the mezuzot on your home. If you're having financial problems, the rabbi might say, not this one. But the rabbi might say, check your tefillin. 
What's the impulse in that? The impulse in that is, and on some level we believe that these things have a power and ability to protect us, that there's something miraculous about them, that they can do things for us in this world by changing and altering the conditions that we live in, that if things are going one way, that we have the ability to ask and control God to make something else happen by looking after those things. The problem is, and I know this firsthand, that people who wear tzitzit are shot at the same way people who don't wear are also shot at. I know that people who have their mezuzot checked all the time and they still have problems with their children. There are people who both have no problems at all and they end up in divorce. There are people who give charity, who fall into financial distress, people who pray all the time, who have health problems. The question in short is, is the tension between the things that we hope will control the world and the way the world actually works. And we all understand the impulse to want to believe that there's something that we can do to change the way the world works. And yet the facts seem to slam up against us all the time. Because despite how often we may in fact inspect or change or look or do, it often doesn't seem as if things change very much at all. This idea is deeply embedded in rabbinic thought. The ancient rabbis say, that the world goes according to its own way. They even point out this bizarre story. They point out a story in the Talmud by saying that there was a village that during a horrible, horrible drought eventually was pushed into engaging in a human sacrifice in order to make the rain fall from the sky, that they believed that if they would sacrifice a human being, that that would be sufficient proof enough to God about how desperately they were relying upon God to make the rainfall. So the Talmud goes on to tell the story, it rained. To which they add at the bottom of the story, but you know that eventually it always rains. A little sooner, a little later, but the rain always falls eventually which was the Talmud's way of dismissing any attempt or any idea that these things control God because God is not controllable. Because if God was controllable, then God wouldn't be God. Or as the great refrain from the German philosopher Kant says, if God is God, then God is God. This tension of this, of this idea is found perfectly in the Torah reading for this morning. I'm going to tell you two stories, both of which you know. But hopefully you're going to hear them in a way that's going to represent the clash between these ideas. The first story, which you all stood for during the Torah reading, is the story of the Israelites approaching the Red Sea. They're newly escaped from Egypt. On one hand, you have Pharaoh's army who was pursuing them in chariots and with weapons if not to bring them back to Egypt alive, certainly to bring them back to Egypt dead. And on the other hand, 
they see on the other side, there is a body of water closing them off. In short, there is no escape. They seem to have no way out from this predicament. And the miracle, we are told, happens. The waters part and the Israelites go in and they make their way to the other side. And this idea of the parting of the seas is represented over and over again, both in folklore and legend and in also a human, human imagination as the representation of God intervening in the world. Religious people, people of faith, bring this up all the time in their language, that if God pottered the waters, certainly God is capable of doing this or that. The other story aligns on a narrative basis with this as well. Because we're told that when the Israelites left Egypt, as they were preparing to part from their home of over 400 years, the Torah text tells us, they left Egypt with weapons. They took swords and they took shields. They took spears and they took bows and arrows. And there was a rabbi who lived about 300 years ago. His, his name is the Chatam Sofer. It was the name of the book that he wrote. He lived in Pressburg in Germany. And he asked the following question. Why did the Israelites need weapons? Certainly God could have defeated all their enemies for them. God could have fought all their battles. Why do they need weapons? The way to understand the tension between these two stories is to understand something else. An idea that was articulated by a great biblical scholar from Hebrew University named Yechezkel Koifman. Say that name five times fast. <laughs> Koifman, or in English it would be rendered Kaufman. Koifman said, most people think of the Bible as a book with a voice. But it is better understand the Torah as a book of voices. There are different voices talking to us in the Torah all the time. And I think it is safe to say that both the story where the Israelites paralyzed or standing at the sea and the waters are parted for them and they are saved by this intervention and the very same story is writ Woven into it is the story of the Israelites being told to pack their weapons. Is a story summarily of us desperately wanting to see and feel and experience God in this world. We just often don't know how to find it. That the desire to see and understand how God operates, why God operates, when God operates, is the most classic of human desires. Religion, and I can speak for Judaism in this, is in the very net sum one of the greatest historical strategies to make humans comprehensively experience God every moment of their life. More often than not, we fail at it, but Judaism will not let us become failures completely at it. It is attempt to harness our desire and our attention to the most important facet of your life.
I remember reading years ago, he wrote a lot of books, by the way. The, uh, the second in command of Apollo 11 was an American astronaut by the name of Buzz Aldrin. Aldrin was the second man on the surface of the moon followed. He followed Armstrong, of course. When he came back to Earth, his story became famous uh, because he went, to, went into bankruptcy multiple times. He became a drunk. He became a drug addict. He went through, I think, three divorces, lost his children. I mean, every nightmare that you could imagine would have been thrown off of corporate boards, the whole thing. And one of the books that he wrote about his experiences, he said the following. He said, I went all the way into the heavens. I walked on the moon. I saw the depths of space. And then I was expected to come back and balance my checkbook. Which in some level perfectly frames, I think, the crisis that we live with we may be able to explain how to put a capsule into space. We may be able to explain how a human egg is fertilized to make a human being, but that does not mean that we are masters of it. And it doesn't mean that we understand it. The fundamental need for humans to be at once connected to God and overwhelmed by God is something that we understand about ourselves but it's something also that in this time that we are so disconnected from, we who are overwhelmed by a surfeit of information and technology and science, and yet we're so thirsty and hungry. This year we celebrate the 1,000th year, the anniversary of the birth of one of the most important Jewish philosophers, Moses Maimonides. Maimonides, in one of his opening statements to his most important work, says the following. He didn't like the idea of miracles, by the way. Maimonides says, if you want to be impressed with the miraculousness of God at night, turn the lights off, go outside of your home, stand under the heavens, cogitate, meditate over the depths of space, the stars that seem to miraculously float in it, the planets that circle one over the other, and then understand, I'm going to add my words, that the space that it occupies is 28 billion light years wide. There is no miracle greater than this one that you live in, and you should be deeply grateful for that. And that's the story to come from the story of miracles. Shabbat shalom.